And I will read verses 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest serving his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wait on account of him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And our sermon text today, uh, still the book of Exodus, chapter 4. I'll read the first uh, 17 verses of that chapter. Then Moses answered, but look, they may not believe me or listen to me uh, when I say the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw the staff on the ground and it became a snake. Uh, And Moses drew back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and seize it by the tail. So he reached out his hand and grasped it, and it became a staff in his hand, so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. He put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, as white as snow. Then God said, put your hand back into your cloak. So he put his hand back into his cloak, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his body. If they will not believe you or he the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they, not, will not, if they will not believe even these two signs or listen to you, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you that you are to speak. But he said, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, What of your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Even now he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, his heart will be glad. You shall speak to him and put his words in his, uh, put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you what you shall do. He indeed shall speak for you to the people. He shall serve as a mouth for you and you shall serve as God for him. Take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform these signs. So we're continuing our study of Exodus. Uh, So today we are uh, finishing up the section known as the call of Moses. Uh, Moses encounters God for the first time famously at the burning bush. And we have already looked at several aspects of Moses' encounter with God here. We've talked about the, uh, the pathos of God uh, expressed uh, in the burning bush as, as God experiences the suffering of his people. We've talked about the name of Yahweh, what that name means, the, the mystery of it all. And we've talked about the purpose of 
bringing the people out of Egypt, which was to worship and serve uh, God, because that's what God's people had been called to. And today, today we're going to take a look at an extended conversation between Moses and God, in which Moses raises a series of objections to which Moses responds. So, uh, while our, our, our previous sermons have focused on kind of big theological issues about God's being and humanity's purpose, I think our passage today is much more personal in scope. Here we just have this guy. I mean, he's just living, you know, that shepherd life, and he's suddenly confronted with God himself. Uh, and this God has called him to challenge the authority of the leader of the most powerful kingdom of the time on behalf of an enslaved people who Moses actually has very little connection to, and uh, from what we so far know, don't even really seem to like him. Uh, what could possibly go wrong? Uh, it's understandable, I think, that Moses is a bit overwhelmed. Uh, you know, sometimes when we read this story, maybe you remember reading this in Sunday school class at a time, and kind of the, the reaction was to kind of roll your eyes at Moses' objection. But, you know, I really read this, and I find Moses' response perfectly reasonable. Uh, I find something actually really relatable to Moses here in his reluctance to God's call. Uh, so, so I want to dig in a little bit and kind of work through that. Um, so Moses starts, Moses wants to know what happens if he goes to the Israelites and they question whether uh, the God Yahweh, their God, the God of their fathers, has actually appeared to Moses and given him a message. And to me, again, Moses' concerns, um, you know, really, he's not really questioning God. He's not really questioning God's authority. He's really questioning, like, his own legitimacy. Like, why would the people believe him? After all, I mean, anyone could go around saying, you know, I have a message from God and you need to do this. Uh, you know, how would people know that Moses was not, you know, some kind of religious charlatan manipulating them in a quest for power? I mean, that kind of thing happens all the time, even to this day. So again, I find Moses' objection here really reasonable. He's looking for some kind of verifiability to the message. And so uh, Yahweh responds by giving Moses these three signs that his message is indeed of divine origin. Um, so if you, we look at the signs, I want to briefly kind of talk about them just to kind of give you an idea about what's going on in the story because, you know, it's pretty weird. Uh, first, Moses asked, or God, Yahweh asked Moses, what's in your hand? Now, Moses is a shepherd, and of course, uh, he happens to have his shepherd's staff handy, as one would. Uh, so he tells uh, Moses to throw his staff on the ground, and lo and behold, the staff, be, staff becomes a snake. Uh, Yahweh then tells Moses to grab the snake by the tail. And, uh, yeah, oh, too bad. A game uh, would have been helpful here. Uh, you know, how do you grab snakes? Uh, you don't grab them by the tail. That's exactly the wrong way to grab snakes. I mean, if you've, uh, you know, grew up like me watching uh, the crocodile hunter, you know, you grab them right behind the head. That's how you grab a snake. But uh, he grabs them by the, the tail, and it turns back into a staff. staff. Now, uh, one thing that, that is hard to see as you read this story, but is really apparent in the Hebrew, is there's a number of really interesting word plays here, okay? And so Hebrew literature just loves these word plays. And the reason they love them is because they help, you know, the person who's hearing the story to make some connections that they wouldn't otherwise make. Uh, for example, uh, when Yahweh asked Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses answers a staff. Uh, in Hebrew, it sounds a lot different. Um, the word for uh, 
you know, uh, uh, what's, uh, what's that in your hand? So what's that is maze. And Moses' answer is mate. It's a staff. Uh, the, and the text is trying to make a point there. And I think what the point that it's trying to make is that Moses has already been given what he needs. He is there, you know, a shepherd, and, you know, he's got his staff, you know, the regular tools of the trade. And, and what God is trying to reinforce there is by saying, look, I, you already have what you need uh, to lead the people out of Israel. The tools are the shepherd of the shepherd is what is needed for uh, Moses' mission to the Pharaoh. That's what God wants him to have. Uh, in other words, uh, not a spear or a sword. What, what, what Yahweh wants of Moses is a shepherd's staff. Uh, Moses thinks he's inadequate, uh, but uh, Moses is actually exactly what Yahweh is looking for. Uh, Yahweh is not looking for a warrior who will fight the Pharaoh at the head of an army and who leads his people by force. That's exactly not uh, what is going on around here. This is a liberation of a different sort. Uh, rather, the person that Yahweh wants for this job is a protector. It's a, he's a nurturer. He's a sustainer. Someone who knows how to care and raise a flock, even in the hostile environment of the wilderness. And spoiler alert, the Israelites uh, end up spending a lot of time in the wilderness. So there's also the repetition of this word hand, okay? Uh, if you go back to chapter 3, verse 19, God had said that Pharaoh would not let the people go except a mighty hand were to free them. And so God himself would be required to stretch out his hand. There's like this repetition of this hand. And what our passage does is it's actually looking back to this promise of God's mighty hand being stretched out. And we see it being uh, accomplished in Moses' hand, okay? So, so I'm going to kind of go through this. Yahweh tells Moses to throw the staff on the ground. And uh, again, there's something really interesting about this word throw. This word throw is shalak in Hebrew. And it's this really rare word. It's, it's used um, only uh, one other time uh, here in the book of Exodus. And uh, it's uh, when Pharaoh commands, issues the command to throw the babies in the Nile River. Okay, that's the same word shalak. So there may, you know, another connection is being made here. Why does the staff turn into a snake? I mean, it's kind of cool, but like, why does it turn into a snake? Why doesn't it turn into like a badger or an alpaca? I mean, that, that would actually be like cooler, right? Um, alpacas? Yeah? No. Uh, probably because a snake is a symbol of Pharaoh and particularly Pharaoh's royal authority. Uh, we've all seen the picture of the Egyptian crowns, you know, the Pharaoh's headdress, and it's got a snake on the front of it. Uh, and that's not just uh, any snake, that's actually a cobra. And it's a symbol that was called the Urius, which represented Pharaoh's ownership of the land and conveyed to the world Pharaoh's legitimacy. So what we have in this uh, symbol is not just like a simple magic trick or in this sign is not just a simple magic trick. This is a symbol and it's a symbol of God's hand at being used against Pharaoh. Uh, so Moses throws the staff on the ground just like Pharaoh.
Pharaoh had thrown the Israelite babies. And then we see Moses seizing it by the tail. Uh, the word for, for, for seizing it there is reach out or grab or grasp. Your, your text might have different words. But it's the same verb for, for 320, from 320 describing how God would reach out his hand and strike or salak the Egyptians. Uh, Moses was worried about his legitimacy. But through this sign, we have Moses threatening Pharaoh's own legitimacy by demonstrating that Pharaoh's own power is impotent. God's hand must be stretched out if a cobra, the symbol of the Pharaoh's power, can be grabbed by the tail and transformed into a simple shepherd's staff. So you really have, again, this like play with power. You know, Pharaoh's got like the power of the cobra, but Moses has the power of like the shepherd. And again, we see like this different vision of how power should be used. We've kind of talked about this idea throughout our study of Exodus. Um, now the next sign is really weird. Uh, Moses places his hand inside his cloak and it becomes diseased and white. And so traditionally this is translated as leprosy. Uh, we actually don't know, uh, what a medical condition is being described here. Uh, it's certainly not the modern disease that we, you know, like the, the lepers on, you know, leper colonies or like that island in Hawaii that has the lepers. It's not that same disease. Uh, from what we gather from the Bible, and it's really hard to tell, leprosy is a group of skin conditions that lead the skin to becoming discolored. Uh, there are lots of ideas what it might be, psoriasis, vitiligo, you know, some of those things that like gold bond powder cures on the commercial, I guess. But we don't really know. We don't really know what leprosy is. However, um, from what we can tell, there seems to have been in the mind of the people of the time uh, this connection of, a, of the whitening of the skin that came about from this disease and death. Uh, the idea was that the flesh is white because it is thought to be dying. And that's why someone with leprosy in the Bible was ritually unclean. Uh, the logic was God is holy. God is a God of life. You know, you have this symbol of death and uh, God's not associated with that. That's why uh, those skin conditions were, were considered unclean. Um, but in any event, it seems like, uh, you know, once he places his hand back in the cloak, uh, you know, it becomes leper, and then it, be, it becomes, uh, you know, afflicted with leprosy, and then it becomes healed. The idea is that is, is Yahweh's power is such that he can make uh, ill and he can heal. He can do what he wants to it heal. A dying hand can be made alive. Uh, and so, you know, once again, we're seeing the demonstration of the power here. Uh, certainly that is not something that Pharaoh could do. And then Yahweh gives Moses a third sign. It's kind of a bonus sign in case the first two don't convince the Israelites. And, you know, at this point, I just don't think, I, sometimes it's kind of presented as like this antagonism between Moses. You know, Moses is raising the objection and God's like, all right, here you go. But I don't really think that, I don't really get the sense of that when I read this. I, I almost get the sense that like Yahweh is really indulging him. You know, uh, he's asking for a sign. And Yahweh's like, here, I'm going to give you three of them. I'll, I'll give you two that are really good and then I'm going to give you another one. Um, so in the third sign, uh, <clears throat> Yahweh directs Moses to take some water, and not just any water, water from the Nile. Uh, he pours it on the ground, and that water would turn into blood. Now, we've discussed several times the importance of the Nile to the uh, river to the Egyptians. The Nile was actually deified as a god. It had a name. It was called Hopi. And 
that I was the reason, uh, more so really than like the pyramids and stuff like that, that the Egyptian civilization was so great. Uh, the Nile would overflow. And when it did that, uh, because it had come down from like the mountains, uh, the uh, rich, uh, the soil would be enriched with the nutrients that came down from the uh, melting of the snow on the mountains to the south. Uh, this created this really incredibly uh, fertile soil, which uh, led to really high crop yields. Uh, once you have high crop yields, you don't have subsistence and civilization. Uh, for the Egyptians, then the Nile symbolized the, the stability, the fertility, the abundance that made them great. So the Nile was more than just a river to them. It was a symbol of everything, the, the, the foundation of like why they were who they were. And I think they would have known that. Uh, in fact, that's part of what the Pharaoh's job was, was to appease the gods and make sure that these uh, uh, periodic floodings of the Nile took place. Um, that was, that was what, uh, what kind of gave him the source of his power. Uh, so the Nile is super important. However, we know from this story that Pharaoh had taken taken this, the Nile River, he had turned what, what really is an amazing gift to the Egyptians, and he had turned it into an instrument of death. When he commanded that the babies would be thrown into the Nile River to kill them, uh, he, he had transformed really that, uh, that source of power, of, 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 of blessing into one of death. And now what we see in this sign is Yahweh is transforming this into a symbol of death. And so it was a direct assault on the very foundation of Egyptian life, of life. But I think for the Israelites, it would have been very comforting. It would have, it would have been a sign that uh, Yahweh had come uh, to free them and from Pharaoh and bring them out of Egypt by attacking, you know, this very source of what made them great. Okay, so signs are cool and everything. And they do seem to accomplish what Moses wants. Moses wants some form of verifiability. He doesn't want you know, to be just some kind of crazy cult leader, right? He actually wants to show that he has his messages is, is, is from, from Yahweh. And so these signs give him that, that his message does have divine backing. However, Moses then goes on to raise another objection. He says that he's slow of tongue and speech. Uh, in Hebrew, the word is not really slow, it's heavy. He says he's heavy. And, you know, there's a, several ideas about what's going on here, but I think it's very likely that he's not just saying he's a poor public speaker, you know, that he has like a fear of public speaking and uh, maybe needs some like coaching or something like that, because we actually have a few medical texts from the time, and they use this phrase heavy of speech to refer to a speech impediment. And if you notice, um, when... Um, when Moses brings this up, uh, what does Yahweh say? He's like, who gives speech to mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? So, you know, those are physical conditions, muteness, deafness, blindness. Uh, and so what he's, what he's saying here is, uh, I, I think that this is also a, uh, by answering this way, I think he's pointing out that this is actually like a, you know, he's, Moses has a legitimate uh, speech uh, impediment here. Now, up until this point, this dialogue between Moses and, and Yahweh has been pretty, like I said, it seems pretty amiable to me. There's been a back and forth discussion. And each time Moses has raised an issue, Yahweh has like 
you know, pretty clearly met it, uh, with, uh, you know, like real answers, like, uh, real response. Uh, even at times, uh, Yahweh has gone beyond, uh, providing, you know, not only Moses with, uh, his name, but an explanation of his name, not with just one sign, but three signs. He's, uh, you know, even like, uh, when, when, when Moses challenges him about his, uh, speech, you know, Yahweh gives him, uh, you know, a explanation here. Um, but in the end, uh, it, Moses finally kind of crosses a line, you know, when he just says, you know, can you just send someone else? Uh, you know, and, and, and Yahweh understandably is exasperated at this point. Uh, he's he's uh, given him all these answers to his objections, uh, but uh, this time, not so much. Uh, Moses still wants to be passed on. And so uh, Yahweh still kind of compromises with him and says, look, I can, I can use your brother Aaron. So, Okay, so that's kind of what's going on here. This is just giving you a background, some ideas about like what's happened here. But what does it mean? What does this passage mean? And I think the best way to view these signs in Moses' objection is that it's this continuing revelation of Yahweh's name, of who Yahweh is. I, I think you know this is about the call of Moses, but the central point here is uh, Yahweh revealing himself. Who who is Yahweh? And that's going to be a question that like goes on and on throughout the Exodus. Uh, that's the question Pharaoh has when Moses uh, says, uh, you know, Yahweh wants my people to go. Uh, Pharaoh's answer is going, or response is going to be, who is this Yahweh? I don't know him. And so that's really what we're being communicated here. Uh, who is Yahweh? And so it's about more, uh, it's about Moses' calling, but more importantly here, it's about who Yahweh is. So to kind of, to go on here, I'm going to reiterate a few points I had made before. Uh, you know, and one of the big ones is really what I'm still fascinated with as I read this passage is the fact that it, really Yahweh doesn't need Moses, right? Uh, he's all powerful. Uh, you know, that's some of the, what we've been talking about. He can be what he can be. He doesn't have to go through a human being. Uh, he can bring the Israelites out of Egypt any number of ways. I mean, he can turn staffs into cobras and stuff like that. Uh, he doesn't really need a human. But I think it really says something about who Yahweh is that he still uses this, this doubtful argumentative Moses. Uh, I think it tells us something important about Yahweh's character. Yahweh is the creator and he's all-powerful, but he is a creator who does not abandon his creation. Yahweh is uh, committed to his plan for the creation. And he doesn't alter his vision. Because all along what Yahweh has done is he's created the world and he's put humans to be in charge of it. And he's like, I'm going to accomplish that no matter how many failings there be, there are. And, and I think it's this amazing uh, commitment and fidelity to his vision that we see demonstrated in this passage. I mean, think about the psalm, who is man that you are mindful of him? Uh, like every good parent, Yahweh's greatest desire is for the, his children to be the best version of themselves. And he's not going to give up on them. So we, um, we see uh, you know, a little bit more about the fleshing out of Yahweh's name. You know, he will be what he will be. 
Uh, that's 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 the what the explanation we're given for who Yahweh is. And you know, one of the things that we talked about in that sermon was how that phrase is communicating like the basically the widest possibility of action. Uh, Yahweh's name is about hope. It's about openness. It's about power. Uh, specifically, the fact that Yahweh has limitless power. And what we see in these signs is Yahweh's power being demonstrated in three realms. Uh, Yahweh demonstrates his superiority or of authority in the transformation of the staff to a serpent. Uh, Yahweh will be what he will be, and that means raising up and bringing down the rulers of this world. Uh, second, he demonstrates that he can make sick and heal. Just as the staff can be transformed to a serpent and back again, Moses' hand can be made leprous and then healed. Our bodies themselves are not under our own control. They're under Yahweh's control. Again, Yahweh will be what he will be. And finally, he demonstrates that he can control life itself. He can change living water to blood and death. The Nile itself was thought to be under Pharaoh's control, and yet Yahweh shows that he can transform the Nile at will. Again, Yahweh will be what he will be. And so what I want to do is I want to take kind of all these ideas together that we've been talking about in in this whole passage of the Call of Moses, and I want to kind of sum them up. Um, and, And by doing so, what I think we're going to do is see this really important point about who Moses is and also who Yahweh is and about the relationship. And so, um, for, for, for each of the, this is kind of important because it points to Moses and Yahweh. Uh, that This call of Moses is also, I think, extended to us and the church as we are called to be Yahweh's people and in relationship with God. So let's first look at Moses. Um, now, if you'll remember way back a few sermons ago, uh, I, I talked about how the text really highlights this confusion about Moses' identity. There's an ambiguity about who Moses is. You know, he's born an Israelite, but he grows up in the Egyptian court. And back in chapter 2, verse 6, uh, he's, uh, you know, when, when, um, when Pharaoh's daughter finds him, uh, she identifies Moses as a Hebrew child. Uh, Then in verse 11, uh, Moses calls a Hebrew man his brother. But then in verse 14, right after that, Moses is rejected by the Hebrews. And then in, in, in verse 14 or verse 16, he's called an Egyptian by the Midianite women at the well. Uh, so who is Moses? I, I, Moses himself even has this question, and that confusion of identity is highlighted when he names his son Gershon. And he names his son Gershon, which means stranger, because Moses describes himself as a stranger living in a foreign land. He doesn't really belong. And yet, there's something really interesting and subtle that our passage does uh, through Moses' uh, call here. Um, if you go back to the beginning of chapter 3, uh, when Moses, uh, when God first calls Moses out of the burning bush, God says in verse 6, he says, uh, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, come no closer, remove your sandals, this is holy ground. And he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, Here's what's interesting. It's kind of a stock phrase. You know, we hear that over and over again. The God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and God of Jacob. In fact, that gets repeated another two times in our passage with the call of Moses. 
But there's something really different about that verse, okay? Verse six. Because, um, because what God says is um, uh, not that God tells Moses that he is the God of your father, okay? Not fathers, plural, which is usually how uh, this phrase is used, but father. And this is the only time we ever see this variation. This phrase gets repeated all throughout the Old Testament. This is the only time we actually see this like uh, th- this uh, variation here. And so it's striking because what I think it does is it kind of brings up the forefront of Moses' confusion about his identity. Because Moses, um, you know, really must wonder, you know, who his father is that, that's being talked about here, Right. Because, um, you know, we don't really learn too much about Moses' biological father. He's kind of just mentioned in passing, and then he never shows up again. And then um, you have uh, him being raised in the court of the, the daughter of the Pharaoh. And even then, uh, we assume the daughter of the Pharaoh was probably married. Uh, but uh, we never hear any mention of her husband. So, you know, when God says the God of your father, I wonder who, which father Moses is thinking about. Uh, I wonder if Moses, you know, is confused. I, I think he, I wonder if he wonders who God is talking about. But then God goes on to say, "Here's who the God of your father is. Uh, uh, God, I am the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." So God is clarifying to Moses that he is indeed heir to the people with whom God has made a covenant, and therefore he is part of the covenant promises. You know, he's not just some shepherd who has no home out in Midianite, in Midian. Um, he is God here is is showing that there's no confusion about his identity. He may have been grown up in Egypt. He may have been rejected by the Hebrews, but Moses' identity is found in God's promises as a child of God. Moses may not know his father. Moses' people might reject him. However, because of God's revelation, Moses now knows who he is and where he belongs. Now, Fast forward to our passage, and there's something that's even, even more subtle that the text is doing with the language. Uh, I love this stuff. I just think this is so interesting how the language is being used to make these points. But if you look at verse 10 from our passage, it says, Moses said to the Lord, Oh, my Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor even now that you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. Now, it's interesting because, in, 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 you know, he says this word I, this pronoun I twice here. And in Hebrew, it actually uses this uh, pronoun for I, anoki. And that's actually kind of weird because uh, Hebrew is like an inflective language. You like actually like attach the pronouns to the verb. Okay. Like I think anybody take Spanish. Isn't that how Spanish is? Like, like, right. You know Spanish, right? So, so in, in like Spanish, there actually is an independent pronoun, right? Mm-hmm. Yo, like yo quiero Taco Bell, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> just like that, right? But it's often not used. You usually just like throw it on the end of the verb and just go with that. Well, that's how Hebrew does. And so <clears throat> when pronouns are used independently like this, uh, the text is usually making a point. And... We find this a point being made this point made in Yahweh's response. <clears throat> so Yahweh responds to this, you know, I have never been eloquent, I am so of speech, and he says, Who gives speech to the mortals? Who makes them mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I 
will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to speak. Again, that I is that independent pronoun, that anoki. Uh, both times, this is what, uh, what Yahweh is using. And so Yahweh is responding by saying that I will be. Uh, you know, this is the same wording as when Yahweh reveals his divine name, Eyah. In other words, who Moses is and what Moses does is ultimately found in relationship with Yahweh and in Yahweh's power. And so what we learn about Yahweh is that, is that Yahweh has a history. He has a history with his people. You know, he's the God of their fathers, you know. And, and what Yahweh wants Moses to understand through this episode, and particularly with the sign of the burning bush, is that, that you know, look, it's not just about you, it's about me. I, I am the God of your fathers. And guess what? You know, like we talked about the sign of the burning bush was a sign of the fact that like God is experiencing, you know, the suffering of his people and he's upset about it. Uh, You know, as much as as Moses might care about his brothers, Yahweh even more so. Uh, Yahweh had met with Abraham. Uh, You know, he had dramatically cut this covenant with Abraham, promising to use Abraham and his family to heal creation and bring blessing to the earth. Yahweh had wrestled with Jacob, and Yahweh had protected him through all of uh, Jacob's failed plots and schemes. Uh, Yahweh is the God of Moses' fathers, and he has a relationship with them. And therefore, Moses and the people have inherited this legacy, this, this heritage, this tradition. Yet, what's really cool about this is as much as that's uh, part of the past, it's not simply about being in the past. Yahweh doesn't simply exist in the past. The faith of uh, their fathers is more than that because it points to the future. Yahweh will be who he will be. It's a future tense. It's rooted in the past, but their faith is about the promises, the promises that Yahweh has made. And so devotion to Yahweh is all about future possibility and the hope. And that's what's really crazy about this passage or what's being able to communicate here. What it's trying to do is show us that that Yahweh is exceeding all all our calculations, all our rules, all our programs, uh, everything that we anticipate. Uh, And what that means is that that we who have been called by Yahweh, who follow Yahweh, are not in uh, just a static conservative faith uh, that preserves tradition. Yes, it's rooted in the past. Yes, we have a heritage and legacy. But it's more than just that because it's about the promises in the future. Following Yahweh is never mechanical. Uh, it's not about like doing X and then, uh, you know, knowing that what's going to happen is Y. It's about creativity. It's about surprise. You know, it's about doing something as crazy as a shepherd's challenging the Pharaoh. And it's a faith that looks forward to a bigger vision, a vision of liberation uh, that's contained in the promises to Moses' father. There's a vision of blessing that encompasses nothing less than the whole world. And, and so what this passage teaches us is that Yahweh is bigger than our own minds. Yahweh rejects our limitations and instead confronts them. He uses what we have. He uses who we are and he redefines it in himself and sends us forward to challenge the world. And, he, and we're able to do so because it's not our power, but his power. Yahweh is a challenge 
And that challenge is because of, of who he will be and what he will be. And so we can no longer, and what that means, I think, for us is that we no longer can be, accept the notion that this is just how the world is. is. Uh, we don't accept the fact that nothing can be done, that nothing can change. And so we have hope. And that's what faith is about. It's about this hope that we uh, don't cling. We cling to a God that's active, uh, that that is changing, that is working. And so, I think the other final point that this passage teaches us is uh, something that that that's almost um, you know I was really wrestling with this because it seems almost too apparent. But um, what we have though in this passage is a God who chooses to reveal himself. And I think that's really significant. Um, This is not a God that is found. This is a God who actively appears, who goes up to Moses and says, look, I have a mission for you. He reveals himself to Moses and he even reveals his name to Moses and tells Moses all about him. In other words, he's not some kind of walled off deity living, you know, in, in heaven waiting to be discovered by us. You know, the thing about Yahweh is we don't look at creation. We don't just look around and we put the the data together and then we figure out like God. Uh, Yahweh's not discovered by us. Yahweh's not conceived by us and made in our own image and with our own limitations. No, God is much more than that. That's why it's it's so amazing when God comes and he's like, okay, I'm just going to totally blow up any kind of idea or like, you know, he, he comes to this story and this story can make a whole lot more sense, except God like just makes it crazy. God's like, hey, I'm going to take this shepherd like out in the desert and I'm going to tell him to free my people. You know, I mean, it's nuts. And I think that this idea about this revelation is what's really incredible about God. Uh, He comes to us in a burning bush and announces who he is. He reveals himself. He shows his power. He enters history. He speaks and acts. And so um, what I think is incredible about this is there's actually this philosopher um, that I read that I think makes this incredible insight. He kind of puts it this way. Um, so this is, this is John Caputo for, for those uh, who, who are wondering. Um, he calls this the insistence of God. And I really like that phrase, the insistence of God. And, and what he means by that is that, that he kind of argues that, you know, we spend all this time um, kind of debating this like really theological, like blah, 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 philosophical, abstract idea about God's existence. And we talk about like proof of God's existence. Like who is God? What does it mean to be God? How do we know God? And yet that's not really the point. That's not really the point of the Bible. God doesn't simply exist. He's not out there, like I said, waiting for us to be discovered. What's amazing about God is that he enters into the world and he insists upon himself and he forces us to deal with it. We can't just sit back. He's not discovered. We have to respond. That's what God does. That's what's really what I really like about this idea of insistence. Because I think it's really important and revolutionary. God enters history. He appears. He hears. He sees. He attends to. He appoints. He seeks out. He calls. He demands. He makes claims. He makes promises. And so what I want to do is uh, kind of describe um, these ideas that I see uh, that John talks about in Revelation, in his vision in Revelation. So, so uh, you know, our passage today from Revelation chapter 1, uh, 
John is writing the seven churches. And so who are the church? Those are the people who have been called. You know, like Moses, they are the ones who, who are following Yahweh's mission. Uh, they have answered God's call. And, and, and they have, um, you know, had an experience. They have, uh, they have seen um, this, uh, this reached in its most perfect expression in Jesus Christ, this call. They have committed themselves to God's plan of healing the world uh, that started with uh, Abraham. They are inheritors of the promise. The, these, these are people who's, uh, who are also uh, heirs to the promises of, who, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, they are the ones who inherited this program and so uh, have seen um, the beginning of the end that was announced in Jesus Christ. And therefore, they have have hope for the world because of Jesus Christ. They've seen God enter uh, into history, showing that power can be used for love and service, kind of like a shepherd with his staff, rather than the way that the evil powers like Pharaoh have exercised it with force and with violence and with swords and spears. And what Jesus showed was that the evil powers don't win even when they use their ultimate weapon, death. And because of that, because of of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, Jesus has conquered that. He's shown that those powers are impotent, just like Moses did uh, with uh, with the signs. Uh, But here we have the even greater sign, Christ's resurrection. And so because of this, John proclaims to the churches that they now have uh, grace and peace. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of the dead. And because of that, that shows that all the powers of the world have tried their best to defeat Jesus and they failed. Now Jesus is the ruler of the kings of the earth. God has been revealed in the world. God doesn't simply exist. He's insisting. He is sitting there insisting. That's what Jesus is. Jesus is the challenge that insists to us. John sees this and he invites everyone to look upon it. He is coming with the clouds, and everyone will see him. Here is God, not walled up in heaven, but entering into the world to heal and fix what is broken. This is a God who reveals. This is a God who insists. And as such, we find our identity and calling in him by joining in this great drama, by by seeing this vision and having a taste of it, of this passionate and demanding God. A God who doesn't exist simply in legend and heritage and tradition, but a God who presents a vision of the future and insists that we be a part of it. A God who will be who he will be, but is also does so in passionate devotion to his creation. As John says, I'm the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. All right.